G'day guys, welcome to the Noob Spear Podcast. This is the spearfishing show where we interview spearfishing experts, authorities and characters from around the world, share their tips, stories and advice right here for free on the Noob Spear Podcast. Today's episode with Ed Martin from Killshot Spear Guns comes about because of, in part because of this request from Eric in the US. He says, Shrek and Turbo, excellent podcast guys. I've learned a lot in 100 episodes. The wealth of knowledge shared from across the globe has definitely increased my awareness of the lifestyle and made me a better Spiro. Listening to the experiences of so many great divers is the reason I joined a club. It's also great to have on my commute every day. One, one area I'd like to hear more about is how guys who make custom wooden spear guns come to decide on shape, design, wood, length, etc. given their target species and ocean conditions. The entire process from idea to food on the table. Just a thought and a request. Looking forward to the next 100 episodes so thanks eric for that review of the podcast and it's always great to get these um ideas um fleshed out and you know made into something so today's episode is part one of two episodes with ed martin um this first episode just focuses right in on wooden spear guns and um it's it's fantastic ed martin killshot spear guns he makes fantastic um, simple spear guns um, that have come about from a process. I'll just read a little bit of a spiel from his website. He says, we make great simple spear guns. I'm the owner and builder of the, and the one thing I've learned through my thousands of days on and in the water is that shit breaks. The more complex the system is, the more likely it is to fail. He says, I'm sure that everyone will agree that the only time they've ever broken a bandit or busted a trigger is while I've been in the, on the water. It's frustrating. He said, so when I set out to build a spear gun, I tried to solve the problems that I've encountered myself. As a consequence, I've designed a spear gun that should give you years of trouble-free service while still looking good. And Ed was kind enough to jump on the podcast with me. And uh, I think this is pretty comprehensive. We get right into the weeds with building a wooden spear gun. And uh, it was a real pleasure to chat with Ed, who's also a patron listener. Now, if you want to support the show, you listen all the time, head over to patreon.com forward slash noobspiro and join a whole bunch of other people supporting the show. Every single dollar on there goes to support uh, trips where I get to come out and meet guests and listeners and re hopefully record a whole lot of um, interviews on the road and, and also go get some spearing. And, and uh, you might have heard the last three episodes that I recorded in New Zealand, which were all recorded in um, March, early March 2020, and they were, that was fantastic. I'm looking forward to getting over to the US hopefully next year. But anyway, hey, let's get into this episode with Ed Martin, DIY wooden spear guns with the man from Killshot Spear Guns. You're in for a treat. This special episode of the Noob Sparrow Podcast is brought to you by spearfishing.com.au. Long-time partners of the Noob Sparrow Podcast, spearfishing.com.au have a listener deal. Use the code NOOBSPIRO to save $20 on every purchase over $200. Thanks for supporting the NOOBSPIRO Podcast and shopping with spearfishing.com.au. This episode of the NOOBSPIRO Podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at noobspiro.com forward slash audible. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. Who uses those? Anyway, noobspiro.com forward slash audible. Well, welcome to today's New Spear podcast, guys. It's an honour and a privilege to bring Ed Martin from Killshot Spear Guns, based down in the Florida Keys. Al, Al how do I say it? Ed, Almarinda? Isla Morada. Isla Morada, there we go. So, how far down the Keys are you? We are at mile marker 81. Point, I don't know, 81.9, but um, we're about 40 miles in um, to the Keys. Key West is 80 miles away. Okay. All right, cool. Um, 
It's a really unique part of the world geographically. Um, in my part of the world, we're, we're kind of unfamiliar with the, the way it works. Can you describe it, sort of the geography of the, the Florida Keys and how it sort of works? Sure. Um, well, the Florida Keys are part of um, the Florida Reef Track, which is actually, I think it's the third largest um, coral reef in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, you guys have got the Great Barrier Reef, so you beat us there. But <laughs> I think uh, um, I think the um, reef off of Belize is, is number two, and then okay. we're number three. Oh, wow. But uh, the, the Keys are basically, it's considered an um, almost like an atoll or a lagoon. Um, you know, part of it, but, uh, it's a string of islands that runs about 130 miles, 140 miles long mm. and, uh, starts up by Miami and runs all the way down to, uh, um, what is it? Fort Jefferson there at the dry Tortugas. Um, the depths, the, the, the water here for the most part, um, stays, um, anywhere from, uh, 70 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit or between about 21 and 32 degrees C. Yeah, right. We've got uh, um, great fishing because because of all the reef out there. Um, you've got kind of a, a shallow area that runs all the way up to the mainland, um, and that's that's called Florida Bay, and that is um, probably anywhere from five to nine feet deep. Okay. Then you get to the the Keys, and then on the other side you have the Atlantic Ocean or the Straits of Florida, and uh, the the reef runs out. You've got sand and patch reef going out about five miles and okay. at about five, between four and six miles out, um, the reef drops away. And for okay. those of you that are using a metric system, roughly 10K out um, mm -hmm. is where the, the main reef begins. And the reef is about a kilometer long or about a half mile wide. Um, and it goes from about 10 meters down to about 25 meters and then drops pretty much straight off to about 30 meters. And then from okay. 30, you get sand and it runs out. Um, you know, you pick up about 100 feet or about 30 meters, what are 30 meters every every mile or something like that. Okay. So it, it's it's a nice place to uh, to get to swim and dive and fish and everything else. And and uh, and a highway sort of connects a lot of it. Yes. That's and and you're, 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 so you were saying you're like, uh, was it 60 miles south of Miami or a bit further than that? Yeah, it, it, we're about 60 miles south of Miami. We're mm. roughly 20, well, I'm sorry, we're about 40 miles from the mainland. Okay. And uh, and then it's another 80 miles down to Key West, and you can drive all the way down to Key West. Yeah, wow. That's, that's amazing. Amazing bit of infrastructure there. It is. Yeah, it's it's quite a bridge system. And, and the amazing thing is, is that um, it was initially um, – the initial road system was set up uh, by Flagler when he built the railroad, <laughs> and uh, back in the nineteen what twenties and thirties. Wow! You know, in fact, you know, one of our biggest tragedies was the I, I can't remember what year it was. It, I think it was thirty five. The uh, hurricane wiped out a bunch of his railroad road workers. Oh! Wow. I've heard estimates, you know, in the tens of thousands of people um, oh, wow. that died that weekend. So and and you you don't have any shortage of hurricanes there, do you? <laughs> uh, some years are better than others. So uh, the, and, um, the, thing, the thing with hurricanes is it's a disaster in slow motion. And, mm. you know, in, in the United States, if you die in a hurricane, you kind of got it coming. Um, <laughs> you know, it's you, you can see it coming for, you know, weeks ahead of time. So, uh, okay. um, 
you know, and, and to be honest with you, the, the next one that comes, provided it's not a, a super monster, I'll stay. Yeah. You know, and if I'm unlucky enough to get hit by a tree or, you know. So you just, you, you bet, you're batting down the hatches, put the storm shutters up. Is that kind of the way it works? Everyone, everyone sort of down that whole keys area is sort of has a strategy in place for dealing with them. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the building codes are, are very, very good. Um, we had um, what was probably the most powerful hurricane um, in the last hundred years, uh, three years ago, uh, that hit just 30, 40 miles down the road from us. And uh, here, my sign out front got ripped off the building. Um, oh, wow. But there was no damage to the building other than that. That's um, amazing. My house itself had had zero damage, um, mm-hmm. and I was forty feet from the Atlantic Ocean. Um, wow! Every one of my neighbors, <laughs> I feel bad for my neighbors. Um, every one of them had water intrusion into their house. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I was just flat out lucky. Yeah! Wow, that's incredible. Um, over here, like we were talking about a little bit about the Great Barrier Reef. When when we get hurricanes up there, or cyclones, however you want to call them, they um, they stir up and destroy the reef pretty bad at times and it, sometimes it also means that we get a big bout of ciguatera because um, when that reef gets disturbed and the, 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 that dinoflagellate, the, the thing that ends up poisoning people as it sort of goes up the food chain, that's what um, sort of causes this, this ciguatera outbreaks. Do you have the same thing in your area? Uh, well, we, we do have an issue with ciguatera. Um, mm. It's not very prevalent here. Um, mm. Now, we don't eat parrotfish, which yep. um, is, is a biggie. Um, and a lot of people won't eat barracuda. Um, now, if I have a four-foot barracuda swim in front of me, he's going home in the court. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I grew up as a kid eating barracuda, and I've loved it you know, my entire life. So it, getting me to stop, it's, it's going to take um, a neurotoxin to make me stop. <laughs> but no we, we do have an issue and, and in fact i had listened to one of the your podcast um where you guys had talked about ciguatera was prior to hurricane irma okay. and that was one of the things that i i noted I'm, I'm pretty sure that podcast was beforehand but we were there were all kinds of advisories about staying out of the water there's all kinds of stuff in the water and blah 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 the first time i went out was about it was a about four weeks after the storm and the first 30 feet um 10 meters it was just socked in i mean you put your hand in front of you you couldn't see it yeah, right. um, but then you got down at about 10 meters and all of a sudden it opened up mm. and the first time i dove down i'm sitting there and i'm looking at the bottom and i'm like where in the hell am i you know it's, i can't see the bottom and all of a sudden it dawned on me i could see the bottom everything was just white because oh, it yeah. Everything was either covered with sand or it had been scoured clean. And mm. all the fish were super uh, shiny um, oh. because they, a lot of them are able to adjust their color based on their condition or right. the conditions around them. So, yeah, yeah, I dove down and I saw some really weird stuff. You know, I, we have something called a big eye here. It's a, it's a reef fish. They're, we commonly see them in the, in the reef between, you know, uh, anywhere from about 10 meters to, to 50. And typically you see them in there about, I don't know, about, about 30 centimeters long. No, I'm sorry, about 20 centimeters long. 
Mm. When I dove down that first time, I saw one that, that I saw three of them actually, and they were probably close to 40 centimeters long. They're the mm. biggest damn big I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and what we figured out um, over over the course of a few months was that a lot of deep water species got washed into the shallows and or were just flat out lost. And uh, so you had fish that were normally out there in 150 or 200, 300 feet. All of a sudden, they're in 20 feet of water. Yeah, yeah. So we, we you, saw some really weird shit. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do you, do you find when you get like, because you had that, that top 30 feet of the water column were sort of like, it was like a big thermocline, but you just had a lot of rubbish in that. Um, did that make the, underneath that, was it darker, the water, and was therefore that one of the reasons maybe why some of these deeper water species were in shallow water as well? It, it could be. Um, mm. You know, I, I didn't consider that, but that's possible. Um, one of the- like it. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say in New Zealand, there's one part um, in one of the sounds where they get a layer of 10 metres of fresh water, uh, the top 30 feet of fresh water. And then underneath that, um, you get coral that's normally only found in depths of 100 metres in, in 15 metres of water. So sometimes that thermocline, if it's been there for a while, so I think it really ad- ad- adjusts um, the marine life and the ecosystem beneath it. So, you yeah, know, that, maybe- it, that may very well be what, what did it. Um, mm. You know, I'm, I'm pretty big into, into research diving and um, used to work with one of the volunteer organizations here quite a bit. And cool. um, it, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd, I'm going to go ask. So um, I'm, I, I might know some people that can actually answer that question. Cool. Um, the citizen science stuff's really interesting. I'm glad to hear you, you, you sort of – so what do you take part in some of these projects, do you? Well, yeah. Um, back in the, um, I don't know, between about 2010 and 2015, um, there was a lionfish program that was going on. And yeah. there were a couple of PhDs that were running around um, tagging fish, capturing fish, and killing fish. Mm. Um, lionfish in our area are invasive and, um, I know other guests have kind of talked about this, but, um, lionfish are, are kind of a pest here because, well, they're not kind of, they are a pest here, um, because they're, they're a fish that eats until it, it can't eat anything else. They will just sit there and eat and eat and eat, not because they're hungry. Yeah. So they, they kill off a lot of the beneficial fish like the cleaners mm. and they can literally decimate a reef, um, so we ran around for, for the better part of five years with them, or I ran around for the better part of five years with them, um, you know, recording fish, catching fish. And it wasn't just lionfish. You know, we were looking at all the different reef, reef species, you know, things that were a centimeter long all the way up to, you know, a Kubera snapper that might swim by. Yeah, okay. Counting how many were in a given area and, um, you know, what the habitat was like and, um and then we go to the next site and go do it all over again. And yeah, awesome. Yeah, you want to talk about diving in shitty conditions? <laughs> that that seems to be what a lot of the marine biology and some of these projects end up being like. You know, these crappy little um, grids are mapped out, and you know, it's just counting every little minuscule thing and that. But but a, a fantastic opportunity as well to really contribute and and extend your own knowledge of of the ecosystems that you you know you dive in every day. So yeah. Yeah, it was it was really cool. 
Hey, um, Ed, one reason I got you on the show, I'll, I'll, I'll just read you this. Um, Eric from Santa Cruz, he's near you. He said, um, Shrek and Turbo, excellent podcast, guys. I've learned a lot in 100 episodes. Um, he shines us on a little bit more. And then he says, um, one area I'd like to learn more about is how guys who make custom wood guns come to decide on shape, design, wood, length, etc., given target species and ocean conditions. He wanted the entire process from idea concept to food on the table um so that was a really cool request from eric um ed you've been a patron of noob spear for a little while i really appreciate that and you run kill shot spear guns down there in the keys i thought it was a fantastic opportunity to get you on the show today and do that so i'm really looking forward to digging in on wood spear guns in our veterans vault but um i really want to sort of learn about your journey getting to you know owning a shop and you know selling equipment and things like that how did it all start for you like what was the what was the moment that your infatuation with the ocean began? Well, one day I looked at my checkbook balance and I realized it was way too healthy. So I opened the box. <laughs> it sounds like buying a boat, doesn't it? <laughs> well, and, and on that end, I own two boats, so I'm really broke. Oh, man. Now, it's, uh, I, I, to be honest, I've, I've wanted to do something like this for a very, very long time. Um, mm. I... I've always had a very serious job. Um, when when I was in the military, I did military intelligence work. Um, I was a security executive for big multinational firms, and I never knew when my phone was going to ring. Um, and it was one of those things. My my wife used to used to tell my friends all or tell her friends all the time that um, she was just waiting until the day I had a heart attack. <laughs> oh, um, wow. You know, it's it was just one of those things where. There was there was constant stress. You're constantly traveling. You know, you're living out of suitcase, and uh, um, I had kind of a um, well. We had moved down to the Florida Keys, and I had had kind of a weird year. I had had a couple of I had a close family member that that passed away, and then I had a very close fet friend that passed away, mm. and it changed the way that I thought about my life and yeah. what I was doing, and I decided. I don't need to go try to make people that I don't know happy. What I need to do is, you know, work on the stuff that I have. And, uh, you know, so I banged around working for my wife and kind of, you know, working as a dive instructor down here for a little bit. And then eventually I just, I, I shut down my consulting company and, um, opened up kill shot spear guns. And yeah. it was one of those things where I was, I was building spear guns anyway and kind of having fun with it. And I thought, I can sell these, um, you know, I'm selling, selling them to my friends and whatnot. Um, I'll make a business of it. And, um, you know, I just set out to, to build the best spear gun that I can build. And, you know, I, I don't like to make a lot of compromises on that. Um, yeah. I use I like, good components. I like your, um, a bit of your bio there in the shop. Uh, we make great, simple spear guns. Um, you know, you, you like to keep it simple, but everything's sort of robust in your setups. And, um, you, you know, you really believe in sort of what you do. So it's it's cool to hear about that. And and so, like, obviously, the way you made spear guns then and the way you make spear guns now, has that changed much? How many years have you been doing it? Well, I've, I've been building them um, as a business for almost five years. Okay. And I've made several hundred guns at this point. I don't think I'm over a thousand, but I'm probably close. Wow, that's a lot of guns, man. <laughs> <laughs> it it is a, it is a lot of damn guns. Um, mm. It's 
it's weird. Um, I'll go two, three weeks and not sell a single one. And then all of a sudden I'll have, have somebody, well, I'll have 10 people walk in in a day and it's like, Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> back, back to work. Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, the goal is, is, is not to be making them, uh, one at a time, but eventually, um, you know, to turn it into a decent business and, and actually grow it. Um, you know, it's, I, I think anybody that starts a business, if, if they don't start it with that in mind, they're doomed to failure. Mm. Uh, but, uh, it's that growth, the growth mindset, just, you know, you're always wanting to reach out and do the next thing. So have they changed from, um, when you made your very first or your first hundred spear guns to now you're making your thousandth or whatever what what's what's changed so i've i've got my first spear gun hanging on the wall in the back mm. and it's behind a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> for a reason <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's uh pretty ugly and it, but it was one of those things that every time i build one i learn something you know so they've evolved over time the the basic design is is very similar to what i started with um, but they've become more refined, um, maybe a little sexier looking. There's a couple of things that I do. Like I've got a gun that I use myself and it's five years old. Um, okay. and it's more squared. It's, but it's just as functional as, as the ones that I'm building today. Um, the ones today, I think just look nicer. Um, my skill has improved. Um, you know, if you do anything enough, you're going to get better at it. And, I am much, much better at making them today. And in fact, so a, a great example, I used to laminate um, all my guns because it was easier for me to make a laminated spear gun blank straight um, and then square it than it was for me to take a piece of wood and make it completely square. Uh, okay. And it's it's just one of those things. You, you learn over time how to do it. And these days I make them out of one piece of wood and – um, you know, so you've got a, a spear gun that's two meters long. Well, not two meters, but it's what? One point, one point, one point five. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's a long piece of wood, mm. uh, to make it completely square and completely straight is difficult. Um, <laughs> and a few years ago, I couldn't have done it. And today I do 20 of them at a time. So mm. is that what, is that why a lot of these guys, um, make their stocks from a lot of composite uh, material, you know, like sort of they cut out their molds and then epoxy them together. Is, is it easier to get it square um, or is it the same as with a single piece of wood? I, for me personally, I found that it was easier. And the reason is, is that I'm, when I glue mine up, I would use um, two pieces of angled um, aluminum, real heavy yeah. duty stuff, and I'd clamp it all together. So when I'm gluing that sucker up, it has no choice but to be straight um, mm. because of where it's at. And then from there, when I pop it out, it's I've already got one side that's perfectly straight. So now I can square it with the table saw. And then it's just a matter of using the planer or other tools to, you know, get the sides parallel. Mm. Okay, so cool. Yeah. Uh, let's let's backtrack a little bit. It seems like we're going to go straight into um, wooden spear guns, which I don't mind because I think we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, but I do want to get back and hook into your story at some stage. But um, I just want to back it up. Like, wood versus pipe spear guns. Um, how do you see the pros and cons of these two? Uh, good question from Arrow, actually, in the community. Um, wood doesn't leak, you know, that's one of the big differences between pipe guns and, and wood guns. 
if a pipe gun is built properly and maintained, it won't leak either. Mm. But um, almost all pipe guns have got a plug in them, and mm. some of them have got O-rings. And when that plug um, deteriorates over time, they will um, that rubber plug or bung or whatever it is that's in in that pipe mm. will begin to leak water. And then mm. once you get the water inside there, it's going to slowly eat away at the inside of that gun, and sooner or later, it'll it'll compromise the integrity of of the aluminum. Mm. Um, okay. I, my first spear gun, I, I had a spear gun made by Voigt. Um, <laughs> uh, of all things, I don't even think uh, I know Voigt isn't a company anymore. I haven't even heard of a spear gun made by them. So, <laughs> but it was it was basically an Arbalet knockoff. I think Arbalet had had licensed it to him, but I I was given one back in like 1986, I think. Um, and uh, we'd get done with spear fishing for the day, and you would have to lean it upside down because the water would drain out of it. So, and it it would take about an hour for that that thing to to drain and uh as you used it during the day it would get heavier and heavier and heavier so that, that's one thing um aluminum and carbon fiber if something hits the side of the gun it's going to make a lot of noise um that's something else um and then i don't know a- it's, it- a- aesthetics and and then possibly recoil dampening with a with a more solid frame as well is something i was thinking about um Aesthetically, people just love like there's nothing like looking at a big bit of timber gun, like particularly if it's got it's nice and carved and all the rest of it. I think they 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 look really sexy wooden guns. I agree. Um, I I think they're more substantial. And and from a weight perspective, your average reef gun, that's say a one ten, is going to weigh about let's say roughly five pounds. So what two and two two, two and a half kilos, something like that. Um, and uh, you know, so it's it's going to be fairly heavy, where your pipe gun is going to weigh half that. Mm. Um, and then when you you throw those bands on there, um, if you're using 16 millimeter bands on that pipe gun, you're going to feel the recoil. Mm. So <laughs> because there's no mass to absorb it in the water. Yeah, yeah, which is which is a big reason why popularity of roller guns have gone up because uh, it does dampen the recoil a bit. But the wooden platform, I think, like. Sometimes I notice when I when I pull on a on a pipe gun, especially if the if the handle is not really ergonomic, I end up flinching and doing all sorts of crazy stuff that pulls my shot. Um, and I think that's just due to you know getting used to preparing for the recoil. It's just like when you fire a high powered firearm, you know you you develop a flinch. That's why a lot of people use like a uh, what do they call it when the trigger just uh, hair trigger, you know, like, but you can't really do that with a friction-based um, spear gun mechanism, as I learned from from Duncan Henderson. Um, so, but I think that's a big benefit of wooden spear guns is um, not having to be so concerned with with um, with recoil. This is a this is always one of these things that, that kind of drives me a little nuts because recoil doesn't have to be as bad as it is if the bands are properly tuned to the shaft and to the gun. Um, you know, so like on my shorter guns, I tend to use a 14 millimeter band, and on the longer guns, I tend to use 16 millimeter. And if we're using a eight millimeter shaft, we definitely go with 16 millimeter bands versus 14. If we do 14 millimeter, then we go with three bands as opposed to two. So it's it's one of those things where you if you balance things out, at the end of the day, that gun should feel very comfortable to shoot. And what you'll find is, is you'll actually hit the target and it will be much more predictable where that shaft is going to go. 
then if it's more overpowered, you're kind of hitting around the target. All right, let's let's go to something really simple. So, like concepting and planning, like your very first spear gun, Ed. Where would you start um, for 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 planning and making your very first gun? What if you were going to go back and do it all over again? How would you go about sort of putting that together? Would you borrow, beg, or steal plans from someone and just sort of, you know, more or less copy their their model? Well, that's exactly what I did. Mm. <laughs> um, so when I when I sat down and built my actually let's not say my first gun well no my first gun what I did was I looked at the other guns that were on the market that were available for me to buy and I said well I really don't want to pay that much for that gun and I really like that feature on that particular gun and I don't like this thing on that gun so I'm gonna get rid of that that I don't like and I'm gonna add that which I do mm. and. From there, I, I kind of figured out what I wanted. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. The first thing that I did after that was I contacted a company up in Tampa, Florida, Neptonics. They carry all of the different trigger mechs that I used and everything. Those, those guys have been in business forever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Josh Josh Gregory, when, when I bought my first trigger mechanism, I bought it from Josh Gregory, and they were actually out in California at the time. Okay. And, you know, he owned Neptonics at the time, and uh, he's still an active partner in it. But uh, anyway, I, I called them and talked to them, and, you know, they they gave me a little bit of information. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos, and I looked online. I ran around in stores secretly using a tape measure to see how long things were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I kind of I, – I had to figure a lot of it out for myself because there's really not a good book out there that shows you how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but – what I'll say is, is that when you make your first spear gun, I used to get on uh, spearboard all the time, and I would always used to kind of chuckle because everybody's first gun is a, a 72-inch tuna gun with five rollers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, you, you know, you want to make things difficult, add a roller. Um, yeah. You know, there's a whole <laughs> lot going on. Um, yeah. Build something simple. You know, build a 40-inch reef gun or a, you know, a, a, a 110 gun that maybe you could use for pelagics or something like that. But build something fairly simple. When you get ready to go to actually build the gun, don't go buy a $100 piece of teak. Go down to the hardware store and buy the cheapest piece of, of pine. Here in the States, you know, you can get a pine 2x4 for $2.50. Um, take that home, cut it to the basic shape that you want that blank to be and then dry fit everything on that gun. Okay. So, you know, I've got pine prototypes sitting in the back room. Okay. The great thing was, is if I don't like them, I can throw them on the barbecue grill and cook a steak. <laughs> you know, I, and it, I wasn't upset about it. Um, but boy, you wanted to see me, see me get mad, watch me screw up a piece of teak. And <laughs> there's a reason there's some holes in my wall. <laughs> You know, I don't throw things anymore. <laughs> so, uh, I was, while I was researching for this episode, I had a look at a little bit of a look at the spearfishing subreddit. Um, and searching for the edge, he said um, he advised prospective gun builders that the number one key to building a spear gun is around the spear. So, and 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 then uh, there's a lot of conversation about how much overhang from your barrel to have with spears. And I've I've had a good conversation with other gun builders about it. I'd really like your take on on that bit of advice 
<laughs> overhang. Man, that's that that's one of those things that's like talking about religion and politics. <laughs> that's a shit fight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my take on overhang, um, it does two things, in, in my opinion, two basic things. It's A, an aim point, um, so it helps you line up your shot. And number two, it counterbalances the spear gun. If, okay. if you've got a 72-inch shaft and a, and a 40-centimeter gun, it's going to be like holding an anvil out there in your hand. Yeah. Um, because it, that, that lever, your lever arm, you know, if, if you think of a spear gun in your hand as your hand being the fulcrum mm. uh, of the lever, um, the further you extend that lever arm out and then put weight on it, the more difficult it's going to be for you to hold it. So overhang is a, becomes a very big deal. I now I like to use between 10 and 13 inches of overhang. I, anybody that doesn't know what that is, your calculator has got a unit function on it and can convert it to centimeters. But uh, yeah, anywhere from 10 to 13 inches. And what I do is a 40 inch gun, which is basically a, a 75 centimeter gun. I use about 10 centimeters of overhang okay. um, and I balance the gun out for that. And with a 110, I use about 12 and a half inches of overhang. Yeah. And, you know, what happens is, is proportionally, as you put that, those different size spear guns out in front of you, your, your instinctual aim point doesn't really change because proportionally you've, you, well, you've maintained that proportion. Ah, okay. I see what you mean. Okay. So that's how I tend to, to think of it. And then as far as the weight goes, the, the weight makes a big deal. I don't like to have a lot of extra gun sticking out. And another reason, another good reason I think is, is that if the shaft isn't properly supported, particularly when you're running like a, a seven mil shaft and some hot bands, when mm. you pull the trigger, half that, that shaft is supported, but the part that's not, what's it going to do as soon as it gets that force behind it? Is it going to fall? unguided. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so I have no, no clue where you're going to hit. 10 to 13 inches is, is around sort of that 260 millimeters to sort of 320 millimeters. A lot of guys um, say that, that that 300 millimeters is the ideal overhang. I've heard some people say 500 millimeters, which is huge. I mean, that's, what are we talking, 18 inches? Like, um, it's more, more. It's 20 inches of overhang. It's crazy. Um, so it's very interesting. Like, Duncan's... Uh, who makes uh, roller spear guns a lot? He he has minimal minimal overhang. Like we're talking four inches of of overhang as well. So it's very interesting. That, like you say, it's like religion and politics. Everyone's got an opinion. So also, so with with rollers, rollers are a little bit different, um, and so are blue water guns. I actually bring the overhang back a little bit on blue water guns because yeah. you're dealing with a slip tip primarily. And I want that slip tip. I, I like the, the line on the slip tip to be as short as possible because okay. that, that tail is going to cause that shaft to track as it's moving in the water. Mm. Um, so the less outside influence you have on that shaft, the more true your shot's going to be. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And also, the, the longer that thing sits out, the more likely you're going to catch your slip tip line. And, you know, there's nothing worse than seeing an 80-pound wahoo swim by and your slip tip is hanging off, um, you know, that's time for suicide. Some guys swear that the longer overhang helps them with aiming. It does. 
Well, you, okay. You're closer. You're closer to the fish. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought they meant like sort of like when you're triangulating, which seems like a lot. A lot of guys don't sight, you know, directly down the line of their barrel. They they'll have their gun at all sorts of different crazy angles, but sort of by feel and intuition, they can somehow triangulate and align where they want to shoot on the fish, and it just sort of happens by magic, rather than do you know what I mean? Rather than by some you know strict mark marksman sort of principles like you use in, in with firearms yeah yeah so with with firearms I, i'm one of these guys i like to shoot long distances mm. and and it, it's one of those things i have to really concentrate on what i'm doing i've got to calculate all these different things and i like the challenge of hitting a target that is 500 800 meters away that's that's very difficult mm. um if you know how to do it it's really not that tough um you're just you know you're calculating it out and making it happen. Mm. A fish swimming by in front of you, you got all these different factors that are going on. You're holding your breath. Um, mm. That thing's moving. Yeah. Um, it's it certainly doesn't want to get killed. And you're sitting there with with something that is a whole lot less accurate. Um, you know, trying to hit it. Um, for me, I tend to I know when I pull the trigger whether or not I've hit that fish. I don't even have to look. I also know when I don't. The really screwed up thing is I can't make myself not pull the trigger. Yeah, it's a hard one, that. I did the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, but but when I know I've got that fish, I've got that fish. And, mm. uh, but most of it is instinctual um, with the, in, like, I, I watch some GoPro videos myself when I, when I shoot fish from time to time. And there are times when the fish will be completely obscured and I can't see it at all because um, the, the GoPro is on my head. And, all of a sudden, there's the fish, and within a second, I've acquired the target and I've pulled the trigger mm. and hit the fish. And it's like, how did how did I do it so quickly? I, I don't understand. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's – and I, I think a lot more people probably do it that way than really realize they do. Yeah, I think so too. I think uh, some people think they're very methodical, but it's, a, it's an intuitive thing that develops over time, which is also a good argument to get in a swimming pool and really fire your gun like 100 times before you ever take it out and start trying to shoot fish with it. But none of us do that either. <laughs> I know, it's, that's horrible. Yeah, but isn't it, isn't it good when you, you, know, you just know exactly what that, that gun in your hand is going to do and how it's going to behave and what you can expect from it? It, it makes such a big difference to your spearfishing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, enclosed track versus open track. How do you decide um, what to do with that? Oh my God, another religion question. <laughs> These come from my community. These guys like asking religious questions. But I think the beauty about having a conversation about a podcast is everyone gets to represent their views, and you know, like everyone's got an opinion. But it's fine. It's nice to sort of um, expand on it occasionally. So, well, um, I, I, I agree, and. I've, I've dealt with math a lot. Um, I used to be, I was a cryptologist ages ago. Um, so we, we pounded a lot of formulas. <clears throat> what I figured out is, is that when you're dealing with the difference between an open track and an enclosed track, and let's say two 14 millimeter small ID bands and a shaft that weighs a pound and a half, you're talking about a couple of feet per second difference. So if that fish gets hit at 400 feet per second or by a shaft moving at 400 feet per second versus one moving at 398 feet per second, it's still going in the box. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've got open track spear guns over here that I use. Um, 
I think they can be just as accurate provided you balance the bands to the shaft and the gun. Yeah. Um, and I've got enclosed track guns that you don't have to be quite as picky about what you do. And for example, there's a, one of my customers runs three bands on a seven millimeter shaft. These are three 16 millimeter bands and they're pretty hot. They're, they're tied at about oh, 380% or something like that. And, mm -hmm. uh, anyway, he, he shoots with that, that gun and it, the, he hits the target. Um, if I take that gun and put it in my hand, <laughs> I shoot a whole lot of water. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't hit the damn target, but, mm. uh, you know, um, I will say that an enclosed track gun, as long as the shaft is straight and you pull the trigger, the distance of the enclosed track, that shaft is going exactly where the gun is pointed. The mm. shaft has no choice. Neither mm. do you. That, that shaft is just going. Um, and it's going down that track. With an open track, there is some, some possibility that it's going to get away mm. uh, you know, and move around. I personally like an enclosed track. I find them quicker to load. Um, I don't have issues with line routing, but I never had issues with line routing on an open track either. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's one of those things is, is you become a better, a better spear fisherman or maybe not better. That's the wrong word. As you become a more experienced spear fisherman, um, cause I, I wouldn't consider myself a better spear fisherman. I'm more experienced. <laughs> I like it. Good distinction. <laughs> oh, believe me, I, I miss, I miss my share of fish. Yeah. But as, as you gain experience, you gain comfort and, you're more comfortable, you know, wrapping that line around and, and reloading things, you know, getting, getting your gear in, in order between mm. shots. A lot of guys have different struggles with spearfishing. For some people, it's freediving and, you know, other people, it's hunting. For me, my biggest struggle is always um, shooting accurately, I think. Um, and it's consistently plagued me. Um, one thing that I anecdotally believe about my better accuracy in recent times is that is um the gun i now use has the the mechanism is like it sits almost directly on top of my uh my aiming hand uh, so what i mean is it's like the shaft clearance to the top of my hand is very minimal and that I don't know if, like, just bear with me. I don't know if that is 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 helping me to 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 get some increased accuracy. Do you have any opinion on that? Like, on how flush the mech and where the spear shaft, you know, sits in alignment with your hand. The closer the mechanism is to the path of travel of the shaft, I think it's it's going to re uh, reduce um, recoil. Okay. So a, a lot of your pipe guns, you're able to move that that the handle and your trigger finger way up high, right underneath the shaft mm. with wood guns. Oftentimes you can't do that because you've got to have a certain amount of wood there. Otherwise the gun's not stable. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but that's where mass can come in. Mm. It's, it's one of those things on, on, uh, okay. You trade You're trading off one for another. You, you're getting increased stability. So perhaps I'm not getting, I wouldn't get the trigger flinch that I'm getting maybe with a pipe gun. It, it's possible. The, the other question is, is, is how are your bands tied? Um, what I bands are, are, are the power plant of the gun. And mm -hmm. if they're not set up right, or they're overly aggressive or too hard to pull back or are too snappy, um, that really impacts the, the, the flight of the shaft. Mm -hmm. And I've got spear guns 
where I've got them set up for myself, where the the band stretch is between 300% and 380%. It, and it depends on what I want to do with that gun. I've, I've got an open track gun that I've got at 300%, and I keep a single wrap on it. I drop down, and it's a 110-centimeter gun. I can shoot anything on the reef with that gun. Yeah, I just have no. to get... I just have to get within about, you know, three to four meters of it because that's all the shooting line I have. I shoot everything that, that close. Anyway, I don't really like taking longer shots, but I do tend to overpower guns a little bit. Um, but, you know, talking to some people, they, they say you can't really over, overpower them. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was just thinking as you are talking. Well, I, I, I think it's interesting that I, I, I believe that you can definitely overpower a gun. Um, so I, I was talking with a guy that's been hunting blue water for a few years the other day, and he insisted on having a having four bands on the gun. Um, it was it was a blue water gun. He's using using it for Wahoo. He's using an eight millimeter shaft, and he took it out and he used it. And he said that he changed things up recently and he went to three bands on it instead of four. And the reason was was that he got in a hurry. Um, because he had missed a fish and he had to quickly reload. So he just loaded three bands. He swam down, pointed the gun, pulled the trigger, and the shaft went exactly where he was aiming instead of kind of in the area of where he was aiming. So uh, okay. now he starts, he's sitting there, he's in the chum slick, and he's pulling the trigger, shooting pilchards from, oh, God, what was he saying? He was about eight meters away. <laughs> he's shooting pilchards floating in the chum slick. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And it, he's like, that's it, three bands. And, yeah. you know, so it, it made a difference, even on a gun that weighs, God, what did that gun weigh? About four and a half kilos. Wow. You know, yeah, it's a, it's a big, fat gun. So mm. I'm, I'm envious of the snipers. I've got a guy that I go out with, and he has um, narrow eustachian tubes. So sometimes, you know, we can't dive um, some of the deeper drops. But um, he's a great guy to dive with because he's just got mad shooting skills like um, – you know, he'll be down at like 10 metres, but he'll be popping stuff in, you know, 16 metres and like top-down shots as well. And I just can't believe it. I'm I'm laying down there on the bottom just throwing sand like a drongo. And, uh, sorry, a drongo is a dumb, really dumb bird. And, um, and, uh, and you know, and, and he's getting all the fish. So I laugh sometimes because the snipers um, definitely have a skill set that, um, you know, that, that, that most of us can only dream of. Yeah. Well, I, I always get really pissed off when, when I make a, a really challenging dive. Let's say I make a 30-meter dive. I'm down there, and I'm staring at mutton snapper that just won't come in, in into range. And I start paddling up, and I'm like, where the hell's my dive buddy at? And he's over there fighting an African pompano <laughs> that swam up to it. And it's like... Yeah. <laughs> Upgrading the composite or carbon fiber spearfishing fins is a huge step in your spearfishing journey and you want to make a smart investment so i'm going to suggest investing your moolah in penetrator fins these fins have got a long-lasting performance they've got a warranty that outperforms anything else in the industry check them out at penetratorfins.com their before and after sales service is absolutely phenomenal these fins are being worn by champions all over the world check them out at penetratorfins.com for a limited time only use the code noobspero to save $25 on any purchase of composite or carbon fiber fins check them out penetratorfins.com Spearing Magazine, possibly the world's best spearfishing publication. It's a spearing mag for spearos by spearos. 
part of the reason I like Spiro Magazine so much is because there's crazy stories from Spiros just like you from all around the world. And it's what makes Spearing Magazine such a special publication. If you go to spearingmagazine.com, check out the article submissions page. There's a full guide to how to submit an article. But I would encourage you to do so because I want to read about your adventures and inspire everyone else to take on their next spearfishing adventure. That's at spearingmagazine.com. So, um... We, we we got we got we got lost in some technical weeds and I and I think it's great. But um, back to our guys that are building these guns for the first time. Um, so a, a composite stock where you cut out you know plywood or something. Um, is that a good way to go, or do you like going with this solid bit of um, pine as the as your first stock? First of all, I wouldn't use plywood. Um, okay. Plywood has some characteristics that I I think are probably um, potentially dangerous. I don't know. They, you you might be able to do it and get away with it, but uh, what what I would recommend is um, getting getting a hold of a decent wood supplier. Um, there's lots of them out there. There and there's a lot of different woods you can use. Everybody insists on using teak, and mm. I, I myself I like to use teak because it holds up. It lasts forever. My customers can take it out and totally trash it. A little bit of sandpaper and some oil looks beautiful. If you're going to laminate a gun, you need to think about the expansion and contraction of the different pieces that you've laminated together. Okay. Uh, so I'm personally am not a big fan of mixing and matching woods unless they're of similar densities and grain structures. Yeah. Um, they might be really pretty, but if you get things moving at a different speed when they're when they're drying out or or getting wet, you potentially could have um, delamination. Yeah. Okay. I, I like to use epoxy to laminate everything together uh, and don't use a fast curing epoxy. Use something that is like a one-to-one that's going to take, it's going to have a, uh, I don't know, pot life of, of maybe an hour, but okay. it's not going to be set um, or I, let's say sandable. It's not going to be sandable for eight to 10 hours. Okay. You want it to to soak into the wood and and really make a nice bond, mm. um, and I've I've never had a gun delaminate. Um, in okay. fact, that was me knocking on wood. <laughs> um, you know, I've I've never had a gun delaminate, and I, I think a lot of it is luck. Now I don't do a lot of laminated guns anymore, mm. um, but use good quality wood. Um, you can use mahogany. Um, some people will use paduke. Um, Let's see. There's a wood called Sipo that um, is pretty popular. Um, okay. What are some of the popular manufacturers use? Um, like, what's Rife using? What's um, Alamani using? What are some of these? Um, to be honest, what? I don't know. Um, okay. I, um, they'll tell you they're using teak, and a lot of them are. Um, like Rife, I think uses a lot of teak. And going back to to laminating guns. It's difficult to get a hold of eight quarter in the states. We call it an eight quarter piece of teak. It is. I use I use wood that's roughly um, 50, 50 uh, millimeters long, or or thick, and you know. So you've you've got to have pretty heavy duty equipment in order to cut it. But a lot of wood that's out there um, is probably in the two to two and a half centimeter width, and if you've got that, you're definitely going to have to laminate it together. So I would say laminate. Um, now you also want to make your, your, I guess your test gun out of something that's very inexpensive. 
a test gun doesn't even have to be completely straight. You know, get it close. You know, you're, what you're doing is you're test fitting things to make sure that you actually understand the geometry because where where things sit might have a huge impact on how much trigger pull you have or don't have. But, uh, yeah, I, did I answer that? Yeah, man. Uh, no, that's pretty good. So, okay, so we've got our, our stock of, of, of wood there. It's, um, it's everything we need. Um, what components do we need to buy? And um, obviously we've mentioned ne- Neptonics, which have been selling these, these awesome components for a long time. How do you – so what, are you, what do you need to buy? And then what do you recommend? So it, it's pretty simple. You're going to need a trigger mechanism. You're going to need some kind of a handle. So ne- Neptonics and Koa, and there's a couple of other companies out there that sell parts. You can buy a handle base, which is basically a uh, you've got the trigger and you've got a mounting point to put a grip on. You can get fancy and do a skeleton grip that mm. you're going to glue or uh, um, pieces of wood to the to the handle, but you're you're going to need some kind of a handle, and uh, you're going to need a line anchor. Let's see, the line anchor or line line anchor slash line guide. If you're doing an enclosed track, you don't need a a line guide up near the front to wrap the line around. But uh, if if you're doing an open track, you will need something to wrap the line on to keep the shaft from flopping off the the front of the yep. gun. And what I always recommend doing, when once you've got your components, it, so that's go back to that real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are basically your components. Okay. Um, you're, you're also going to need bands. Think about what size bands you're going to need or use um, for fishing in your area, because that's going to dictate what size band slot you use or make, and how many bands you want to put on that gun. Uh, okay. Okay, let's just go over it again. So we need a we need a trigger mechanism, uh, a handle, possibly a line guide if it's um, open track, and then we need bands. Is that have I covered it off there? Yep, and a and a line anchor. So and a line anchor. And, okay. Yeah, and the line anchor is on the bottom part of the the gun. That's what you're going to wrap your line around. Yeah. Um, underneath, or your reel line is going to go through that if you shoot shoot a reel. Okay, cool. All right. And um, there's a lot of talk about mechanisms. Um, the reverse trigger mechs are the the kind of the 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 the, hap, the happy flash word that gets thrown around. Um, what are your opinions on trigger mechanisms? Okay, I I like this question. There's a lot of decent. There's several decent trigger mechanisms. Um, and if I use Neptonics, I've got the most experience with their trigger mechanisms. They're rock solid. They use a solid piece of or a solid box of a solid steel box and they put all of the components for the trigger inside of it. And there's really nothing in there to fail. A, a spring can break every now and then, but I think they're warranted for like 10 years. Okay. So, um, you know, that's, that's a very long time. The difference between like most trigger mechanisms and a reverse mech, the reverse mech, usually what, what the makers have done is they shaved off the top part of the trigger mechanism and they have put the sear further back in the in the trigger mechanism. And the sear is the part that actually holds the shaft in place. Okay. So it sits further back. It holds the shaft. By doing that, you're moving the shaft back an inch or two. Okay. Uh, or let's say, you know, 25 to 35, maybe 35 to 40 centimeters. Mm. Uh, that's nice because you get more band stretch. 
which is a big deal on a spear gun. And I use a reverse mech on most of my enclosed track guns for that reason. There's one other reason that I use it. And with the Neptonics reverse mech, it auto resets. I sell a lot of guns to new spear fishermen. And yeah. with that line, uh, line release flopping around as they're trying to load the gun, sometimes it gets in a position where it blocks the, the, the trigger um, so the sear can't engage the shaft. And uh, they, come back and they come back in, they're, they're complaining, they're like, oh, I don't know if it's working right. And it's like, oh, you're, you're fine. Um, you know, the gun's fine. You just need to use gravity. And, yeah. you know, once that's explained to them, they get it. But I would say one in ten people will come in and they, they're like, man, it just ruined my trip. And I'm like, huh, everything's fine. You know, this, this is what it is. And they feel like a fool. And I hate it. It's really tough to tell somebody that that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. Because it's one of those things they think then, well, God, I should have known that. And it's, no, you're new. We, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we've all been there. So, mm. But it's a damn shame for them, too, if it's ruined a trip. Or, oh, you know, yeah. And they just haven't been able to figure out how to reload the gun. Absolutely. So, and see, safeties, I, I put safeties on some of my guns, and I explained to everybody, if the safety is engaged, the shaft will not go into the trigger. You know, I about once a year, I'll get somebody that'll come in and they tell me their gun's broke. And I'll push the safety out of the way, and the shaft immediately goes in, and they're like, how'd you do that? So, ha how come you use the safety? Because a lot of us hate them <laughs> to, to put it kindly if if you look at my at my guns i don't have mm. a safety um my my safety is attached to my hand permanently yeah <laughs> it's it's storing that trigger finger unless you're actually intending to shoot yeah i i've got a lot of trigger discipline yeah. and yeah i i never touch that trigger until i'm ready but i do have people that particularly new divers you know new spear fishermen they Free diving is dangerous. Spear fishing is dangerous. Oh my God, there's sharks in the water. Um, you know, they're nervous about a lot of things and they're trying to eliminate risk. They think that putting a safety on a gun is going to help them do that. And it, and it does, I guess. But, you know, personally, I, I don't like a safety. I don't point it at something you don't want to put a hole in. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it's that simple. Okay. So we've got our stock, we've got our components. I guess the next thing we need to do is make sure we've got all the tools we need before we start the job. Um, I watched a couple of vids last night and the sheer list of tools this guy was using uh, would make it absolutely ridiculous for me to build a spear gun unless I was going to build 10 because then I think maybe I would have an economy of scale that was you know, worth my time and energy. But I don't know that necessarily people build guns to save money. They build them because it's just maybe that it's addictive and, and it's kind of fun um for not it's not for everyone by any stretch but but um what what tools do we need let's see if you're going to be cutting your own blanks you're going to need some kind of a a saw i like a table saw you potentially could do it with a track saw or a circular saw to to cut that thing but it's not you're gonna have a very difficult time getting everything perfectly straight and you also want the gun to be square because as, as you start cutting into it with a router, you're going to, you, if it's not square, you're going to have a hard time uh, making everything lined up. So that's the next piece is a, a table saw is a very nice to have. A router, I think, is absolutely essential. If you don't have a router, you potentially 
could use a sander, literally sand out an open track. And, uh, you know, all, all you're really doing is putting a groove in it. You could even carve it out with a couple of chisels. So, uh, and if you've got a set of chisels, you definitely want to make sure they're good and sharp because you're going to need them um, to square off the trigger mechanism uh, hole or the trigger pocket. Yeah. Um, so chisels. Um, I use now. I'm I'm fortunate. I well, not fortunate. I because I build spear guns. I went out and I bought a mortising machine that actually yeah. it's got a square chisel in it. So <laughs> in in the time that you do one, I can probably do fifty. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty slick. So you st- you still drill the holes before you put the mortise chisel in? Uh, no, no. With the mortise chisel, there's actually a drill bit inside of it. Oh wow! And it's got a heavy duty. I think the uh, the arm on the thing is three quarters of an inch thick, solid steel. You pull down on that sucker, and um, I weigh two hundred and twenty pounds, and I'd say half my body weight is on that arm, wow. and it just chews right through it and pop it back up, scoot it over half an inch and do it again. Yeah. You can, you can carve a rectangle in a, in a spear gun. It takes me about two minutes to cut a trigger mechanism. You're, you're definitely going to need a decent sander, you know, a palm sander, vibrating sander. If you have a belt sander, you could potentially clamp that to the bench and use that to, to shape the gun in, in different ways. Let's see what else. I was just thinking um, to get the stock straight, you were talking about it briefly, but you talked about aluminum channels and, and, and you need a lot of clamps. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, I, I'd say get a half a dozen clamps that are big enough to, to hold the, the stock straight when you're gluing it up. And uh, you, you can never have too many clamps. You know, most of us, I think most people that build spear guns are probably fairly... Um, uh, what is it? Mechanically inclined is probably a good way to put it. So, you know, you're likely to reuse these tools um, yeah, over over yeah. again. So, if you're if you're a handy person, you've maybe got half of the stuff. But if you don't generally muck around with it, and you've just got the standard, you know, cordless drill and hammer and a couple couple of screwdrivers, you, you're going to go out and make a big capital investment in some of this equipment. Yeah, yeah. One of the and one of the other tools that is very handy to have. I have a, a thickness planer, and it, Thickness planer basically has a, a solid base, and then it's got a, a movable cutter head that drops down. And I can run a 10-inch wide piece of wood through that thing and make both sides parallel to one another. Mm. Uh, now, I can do the same thing on the table saw um, just by running it through and just, you know, cutting, you know, however much off I want on the table saw. It's not quite as accurate on the table saw, um, but it can be. So the, the, the table saw is a, it's a wonderful tool. There, there's a lot of different ways to use it. Mm. Uh, something else is uh, uh, you can make a, uh, what is it? Basically a sled. So when I square my blanks up, what I do is I actually drop them onto a sled that is a, it's a three quarter inch piece of wood um, that's about, I don't know, 10 inches wide. And it's got mm. holes drilled in it so that I can clamp that clamp the spear gun stock to that flat piece of wood. Okay. That flat piece of wood I know is, is square and straight. So what I do is I line it up. Um, I've got some index pins and I push, push the stock, um, the straight edge of the stock against those index pins. And then I run it through the table saw. Ah, okay. And that, that gives you a very precise. Right. So the, the bottom is going to be flat 
now I've got a side that is exactly 90 degrees to that side or to the bottom. So now I can, I can rotate it 90 degrees and I can cut that the next edge off. Usually what I do is at that point, I take it off the sled and I run it through just using the table saw on the fence. Mm. And now I, I can actually square the blank up the rest of the way. The, the biggest the biggest trick is to get one if you can get one side completely flat um, then and and you clamp it in using using a uh, like a, a sled like that mm-hmm. uh, and if, if you look up um, a squaring squaring jig or uh, joining a, uh, go to like YouTube and look up uh, using a, a jointer or a table saw for a jointer okay that's That'll. There's a lot of different people that'll that'll show you how to do it, and I've even got a couple of clips on on Instagram. Mm, okay. And pushing work through the table saw. So is that just uh, kill shot spear guns on Instagram? Yes, it's kill shot underscore spear guns. I don't know how, but somebody else had kill shot spear guns. <laughs> well, there's only so many um, spear this and spear that and spear this and spear that. You know, like we're remarkably predictable with our uh, with the names we give our little projects and stuff. So I know. Um, yeah, yeah. But I like Killshot Spear Guns. I think it's a cool name. So Killshot underscore Spear Guns on Instagram, and you've got this this square sled sort of set up there to demonstrate. Have you um, have you ever videoed the entire process of making a spear gun? I have, but I haven't put it all together and published it yet. And it's yes. it's not because I, I don't want to. It's because I'm lazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It is. It's, it's a lot of work, and I, I want to be able to put out decent content, um, mm. not look like a third grader did it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but everyone starts somewhere, Ed, and you're your own worst critic. And I know. Like, if, if I if I only publish the podcast that you know I felt like I was slick and cool and not a third grader, um, there'd probably be three episodes, you know. <laughs> so I'd encourage you to to do that because um, it's great, like talking through the process on the podcast. But you know the just the nature of just audio only it um it's not it's never going to be quite as good i'd I'd love to see the the full process done but like you're talking how how many hours does it take you start to finish even with all your gear set up your um you know the you've got i'm sure you've got a very systematic process by now how long um start to finish obviously you set them aside for some hours as well and there's waiting processes and stuff like that but yeah what do you think the time outlay is? And probably your your process is more efficient. So ha- what's the likely time output for someone who doesn't have your background? Well, um, it's interesting. It, it's it's very predictable. So it takes me roughly three minutes per pass when I'm cutting out an enclosed track. So I do four passes to, to cut the, uh, the slot to pour the epoxy into for an enclosed track. So... Um, what is that? 16 minutes, or I'm sorry, uh, 12 minutes. You know, that's, that's what it takes. Now, as far as the actual, you know, the, the days, typically I will cut the wood, get it square, hog out all the material to pour the track. I'll then pour the track the next day and do other things. Then I will come back the following day, plane that off, and then do most of the shaping and cutting of, of the track. So about it's it's really about two full days. Okay. Whether I do one gun or well, let's say I do ten, 
it pretty much takes about the same amount of time. You know, it, it does take longer to do 10 guns just because you got to do everything times 10. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, doing setting it up and doing it just for one gun, when you're running a business, that's not effective. Yeah, yeah. So it's batching. Yeah. But when you're doing it as an individual, you want to take more time because you don't have the experience and the comfort. For me, a lot of this, I go on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that my trigger mech is going to be five and a half inches from the back of the gun. And when I'm actually done with the gun, I'm going to cut a half an inch off. The distance now between the trigger mech and the butt of the gun is going to be five inches. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I just know that. So mm-hmm. I don't have to measure that 10 different times to make sure that it's right and then dry fit it. Um, yeah. You know, so don't don't get in a hurry. You There's that old saying about measure twice, cut once. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually what I say is, is, Cut once, go to Home Depot, and then cut again. So, <laughs> familiar with Home Depot? Yeah, yeah. We have a, a version of it here in Australia and New Zealand called Bunnings. Um, but um, it's a it's a great store. I, I absolutely love it. It's a great way to spend a Saturday. But, uh, yeah. Um, we, we have got, uh, again, bogged down in the process, and it's fantastic. Uh, I wanted to sort of bring us up a little bit um, and talk about buoyancy and ballast. Okay. Um, how, how do you balance the spear gun? All right. Um, so I mentioned math earlier. Um, depends on what kind of gun I'm doing, but I sat down and kind of crunched the numbers. Um, and what I tried to do was get the gun pretty close to neutral buoyancy, but I wanted it to sink. And uh, you've got a couple of things to consider with. I like the front of the gun to be slightly heavier I, I want to feel the weight in my hand. I don't want it to be heavy, but I want to. I want some feedback. When it, when I built my first spear gun, I was so proud of myself because man, I let go of that thing and it just it it sank perfectly straight in the water. Oh wow! Excited. I was like, oh, this is this is badass. <laughs> I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with it. <laughs> it. And what it was was I, my whole life I've always had spear guns that the tip weighed more in your hand so that you had feedback coming back telling you that, yes, I'm, you know, I need to lift that up or I need to, you know, it's pulling down or whatever. Well, all of a sudden I'm not getting any feedback from the front of the gun and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm lining up my shot and I'm keep looking over the top of the gun to make sure that it's in the right place because my hand isn't telling my brain that it hasn't moved. It, it's a weird, it's a weird arms, particularly if you've, if, if you've shot handguns, um, you're very used to that feedback of having that 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 gravity affecting the gun, mm. and all of a sudden I didn't have it, man. So the first I, I went home after the first time I used the gun and I drilled a hole in the bottom of it and dropped the lead weight in it. I was much happier with it. Okay. Uh, now, from a safety perspective, if you drop a spear gun on the reef and it sinks butt first, that's a really dangerous situation, particularly yeah, yeah. for free guys, because that gun is now pointing at us. Um, and we're going to have to go down and go get the damn thing. Um, mm. So I like them to, to sink slightly tip down. But again, I, I don't like them to be heavy. There's there's a, a couple of guys I spearfish with, and they have some spear guns that are made by some of my competitors. They always want to – I always let people borrow my spear guns. you know. And we're out there for Wahoo one day, and this guy hands me – I don't know. It's a, a 130, 140 um, centimeter gun or mil- – uh, yeah, centimeter yeah. gun, and yeah. he hands it to me, and I was I put it out in front of me. And I was like, "Oh my God, I need two hands to hold hold it up." 
Oh, no. Yeah, it was it was just so heavy. And it, it just wore me out trying to dive with it. And uh, with with mine, I try to get that, that weight so that there's – when you're holding on to it, a 90-centimeter gun or a 140-centimeter gun, they feel the same. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's tough to do, but the more wood you have, the more you can play with the buoyancy. I've got a page of, of math that I do when I'm, whenever I'm, I'm building blue water guns. Mm. I sit down and I calculate out what the density of the gun is. Then I calculate everything that I'm going to be cutting off of it. And then I calculate out what all the, the different components are going to weigh. And then I figure out, okay, I need this much lead. Um, and then I make up little ballast weights. They're about 30 grams a piece. And um, I can drop them in into the track or underneath the track of the spear gun. So when I epoxy over it, they're gone. You don't even know they're there. And then I, I do one of two things when I'm done with the gun. I take it out. I've got a boat ramp right behind me. And it's, I don't know, 50 meters from the back of the shop. So I just go down to the boat ramp and I toss the gun in the water and see how it floats or sinks. Okay. And, uh, and then from there, I can decide if I want to add weight in a certain place or not. Typically, I'll, I'll go ahead and put it in and if, if I need to add additional weight, I make a decision on whether it's a lot of weight or it's a little bit. If it's a little bit, I'll usually put it in. I, I make lead, different shaped lead, lead ingots, kind of like, like a lead plug, okay. and drill it out, drop it in, epoxy it, and then I cover it with a wood plug. Ah, uh, I guess yeah. you can't even see it. Exactly, yeah. It, it kind of blends right in. And then if, it, if I've got to add a lot of weight, um, I usually do some kind of a vanity plate, and I just cut out. I, I figure out exactly where the lead needs to go. I melt it down, and uh, then I, I drop that weight in, screw it in. Then we cover it with some kind of a vanity plate, either aluminum or, or um, plastic of some kind. Yeah. The, the cool thing there is is if the user then decides he wants to change shafts, maybe he wants to go from an 8 mil to a 9 mil shaft, it's, it's easy for me to do. We just pop that lead weight out, and we put a new one in. And, and something I'm going to say real quick about mm. lead. Do not melt lead and pour it into the wood. It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> what, what you're doing is, is you're sucking all of the moisture out of the wood in that particular spot. Number one, if you have laminated your gun, and most of you guys that are going to build guns are probably going to laminate them. If you've laminated it and you've used epoxy, epoxy breaks down at about 200 degrees. Uh, so, okay. um, and that lead, when you pour it in, is at 750 degrees or hotter. And oh, wow. you will just destroy your laminations. Okay. Uh, so do not pour the lead in. Carve, carve something else out, pour the lead into it, and then put it into your spear gun and screw it into place or epoxy it in. Daniel Mann. Uh, had a had a cheeky question. He says, uh, "Why is oil a terrible choice to finish a spear yeah. gun?" Just, uh, <laughs> it sounds like he's already made up his mind. He has. He's he's very biased. He's made a lot of spear guns himself, and he's very opinionated, as anyone who does anything for a while, I think, is. So, <laughs> what do you think? Um, I don't really agree with him on that one. Okay. So, right. um, I use an oil blend finish um what i do is i put i put oil down on the gun first it's it's actually an, an oil thinned with a solvent okay. uh, so that it penetrates well um so i get decent penetration i do two coats of that and then i switch to a what i call my secret sauce which is it's very 
it's kind of a combination of oil, polyurethane, and a thinner. And uh, what that does is it, it creates kind of like a hand-rubbed finish over the gun. And the polyurethane helps to kind of keep water out, and it keeps that finish looking nice for a longer period of time. Oil does get sucked out of the gun pretty quickly. So when you, you know, the first time you use the gun, it's going to look okay. You know, you, you can tell you used it if you just used oil. Mm. Um, you're going to have to oil the gun a second time and a third time and a fourth time. Um, with, you know, there's a lot of people that say, oh, epoxy is the only way to go. Um, mm. I, I've used epoxy for, shoot, 35 years, 40 years mm. on different things. It's great on fishing rods. I don't like it on spear guns. Um, what you're doing is you're taking a piece of wood that is going to expand and contract and will suck up moisture when it gets wet, mm. and you're going to coat it in plastic. When you get a little chip on that epoxy, that water gets in there, and over time, it will eventually spall and cause the epoxy to be undermined around that hole. So yeah. you start from a little pinprick. The next thing you know, you've got something the size of, you know, um, I don't know, a couple centimeters in diameter. Um, have you ever tried to sand epoxy off of a spear gun? Um, yeah, it's, I'd, I'd rather throw it away. Um, that said, you, you do the same thing with some kind of an oil and like a poly gun. I use a lot of polyurethane. Polyurethanes are, are amazing. Um, they're fairly thin, they penetrate well, and they're very, very, very uh, robust. You know, they, they last a long time. I've got a gun that came in today actually that's sitting in the back that I sold three years ago to a guy and it's he uses it all the time is polyurethane and it still looks pretty good and what I've recommended to him and he does is he rubs it down with oil periodically to cover the wood or to protect the wood that gets where the nicks and dings are here in another year maybe two I'll actually take that gun and I'll sand off the poly and we'll put a new coat on it and he'll be off to the races so but um yeah, so I, I like a finish that I can retouch because, to, to me, a spear gun is a tool. Yep. And um, I was out shooting grouper um, just before the season closed, and I, I use a float line. Um, I'm one of these nerds around here that <laughs> I, I love a float line. Um, I've got a reel on the gun, but I usually lock it down because float lines don't jam. Mm. Uh, so I, I plug this grouper. He goes running into a hole and right out the backside of the coral head. And I watched my spear gun go into it, and it hit every single inch of that coral head. <laughs> you know, so it, it was just mangled. And, yeah. But and he drug it out the other side, which made it very entertaining uh, trying to retrieve the fish. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, you know, the, the, gun, the gun was a little bit worse for the wear, but a little bit of sandpaper, it'll, it'll bounce right back. Yeah. So. Um, does it annoy you, like a lot of the boats I go on, um, w generally, we just jam our guns into the side pockets or up the front of the boat. Um, generally, the weight belts are down the back in a bucket, but everything else is in there with them. Um, as a spear gun maker and a, and, a, and a spear gun lover, would that situation just infuriate you? <laughs> no. No, it really does. Um, in fact, I, I encourage all of my customers to be very abusive with their spirit. <laughs> yeah. That's how I generate new business. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it doesn't bother me. Um, the only So when I'm spearfishing, the only time that 
gun storage is an issue for me um, where I get on people is when it's a safety issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody puts a loaded spear gun in the boat and, and we do from time to time, depending on, you know, particularly when we're blue water fishing, yep. uh, that gun's pointed in the wrong direction, man. It's going to be a bad day for somebody. Yeah. Probably the guy getting yelled at by me, but uh, yeah, safety is a big one. Um, mm. But as, as far as um, I don't like to abuse my, my spear guns, but mm. I make them simple and I make them robust for a reason. You know, I've been at this game for a long time. You know, I've seen some crazy shit happen to these, to people's gear. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can't take a carbon fiber gun and drop it, you know, three feet onto the deck and just smash the crap out of it without fear of breaking something. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, with, with the wood gun, probably not going to hurt it. Um, yeah. You're probably going to get yelled at by the guy that owns it, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, Duncan asked me to ask you, what are the common problems with people's homemade wooden guns? And this is probably a good one to ask because I guess you, you, you do you see a lot of go, uh, like guys come in with their homemade guns and reporting issues? I get a few people that come in from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, unfortunately it's, it's going to get a whole lot worse. Um, I've got a partnership done up with a, a company here in the States where I'm building a blank kit for them. Okay. And um, so basically what I'm doing is I've, I've milled out an enclosed track and uh, the trigger mech and the handle base and everything, and then they can shape the gun. Okay. And I'm going to get people that are going to do some crazy things to it. And um, so we, trying to think ahead of what are some of those problems, I've put together kind of a, an instruction list of, you know, when you lay out the gun, make sure that it's flat and square don't round all the edges and expect to be able to find dead center. You know, it, a lot of it may seem like common sense, but if you've never built a spear gun before, it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I can send you a, a copy of that. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, it's it, it's pretty simple stuff, but it's one of those things where if, if you don't think about it, you know, it's, well, if you've never done it before, what's that old line about experience is what you get exactly after you need it? <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. It's uh, um, that's that's how we all learn. So it is, it is, and, and it's fun. Uh, no, it's just funny. Like we all we all learn that way. You, you like it's like it's like a rite of passage or something for us to just do the, you know, do it the hard way, the first way. And like, like I don't fault guys for doing it because I've learned a whole lot of shit that way. But gee, because sometimes you just wish you could spare yourself the pain. Yeah. Well, it's, as, as somebody with some experience, it's kind of fun to watch people go through that struggle sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think one of the, well, I, I see a couple of things. Um, Oftentimes, people will overbuild a spear gun. So, you know, they want a 40-centimeter gun. It, the thing is, is like, I don't know, six centimeters in diameter. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a massive chunk of wood. And they didn't have the tools to be able to, to get rid of most of that material. You know, and, you know, hey, it's your first gun. I get it. Um, my first gun, pretty ugly. Um, <laughs> it's not going to win any beauty contests. I guarantee it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'd say, you know, that not, not doing a good job with, with design is kind of an issue. Oftentimes people will add lead, um, and they'll do it in a way that they can't get it back out of the gun and they wind up with a very, very heavy gun. And then, um, 
people oftentimes are buying things they don't exactly know what to buy. So maybe they buy a shaft that's too heavy or too light, or they buy bands that, you know, for whatever reason, they were sold bands that just aren't going to work for that gun, you know, but they're trying to make it work, you know, so it's, there's a lot of trial and error in this, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, the, the other thing that, that can be really difficult is setup and, or I should say layout, how the gun is laid out, where the trigger mechanism is and where the handle base is is absolutely critical because if the trigger is too far forward, now you have a really long reach to grab the trigger. If it's too far back, it might be very uncomfortable for you to actually find the trigger to pull the, you know, pull it. Okay. So, um, you know, I, for me, I sat there and I played with it and played with it and I, I wanted the trigger halfway down the, or in the middle of that, that the, the fit my finger pad. Okay. That's, that's oh, okay. I get what you're talking about now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so, yeah, yeah. Sorry, it took me a little minute to get w what you were saying. So, like, your hand wraps the handle, and where on your on your index finger the trigger sits. So, like, whether it cups cups at the main knuckle or further forward up towards the tip. Yeah, that that's a pain in the ass if the tip is, you know, like the tr the. I don't like it right up the end. It, it's got to be in the media finger, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, see, I, I like it right there in the middle of, of my finger pad. and mm. But there are guys, uh, yeah. there's a bunch of guys here locally. Um, they want it further back. Okay. You know, they, they want it on the first knuckle. And it's like, mm. oh, God, you know, for me, it's just, ugh. you know, I, mm. I don't know. It's like somebody running their fingernails down the down a chalkboard. Um, I, guess, I guess the argument there would be they, they like the feedback through bone. Whereas, like, but you think the pad of your of your of your finger, like in between the two knuckles, would probably have the best receptors for force. I guess I don't know. It's a funny thing to think about, isn't it? It is, but you know, again, I spent years shooting firearms, and mm. um, you know, so I like I like all of my guns to be set up the same, and mm. um, I shoot a lot of guns that have got an AR style hand grip. Yeah, and so. When I switch to a spear gun, all of my spear guns have got an identical grip, you know. So it's like I'm I'm holding on to the same the same gun no matter what size it is. Okay. So there's little things that that you can do to make yourself more successful as a spear fisherman, I think. And doing things like that that lend consistency, it, it's really helpful. We interrupt this Noob Spiro podcast to bring you a public service announcement. These shows are often explicit and filled with ridiculous levels of stoke and actionable info. For more stoke, head over to noobspiro.com forward slash more stoke and join the Floater newsletter, an intermittent publication overflowing with spearfishing goodness. That's noobspiro.com forward slash more stoke. You're welcome. Hey guys, today's podcast is brought to you by freedivingsafety.com. It's powered by Ted Hardy from Immersion Freediving. He won an award and he decided to create something that could help the whole world, every single person wanting to get into freedive spearfishing. There's a whole bunch of foundational principles and knowledge that you can learn at freedivingsafety.com. It'll help you to catch more fish and have more fun, believe it or not. It's not just a safety course. This is practical information in there for helping you to not only manage the risk but to have more fun and look after your mates and yourself check it out freedomingsafety.com
All right, so back back to spare guns. It um, where 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 to next? So we've we've talked we've covered sort of the length and breadth of a lot of it. Um, maybe care and maintenance is we, we sort of touched on. Um, is is that something else that we need to address? Yeah, I, care and maintenance is is a good thing to discuss. Um, I I've got. I've got clients that do not do anything to their spear guns. They literally bring them in and they throw them on the dock and they hit them with the hose and that's it. You know, yep. they pick them up, chuck them in the back of their truck. They're your, they're your typical Shrek, Shrek customers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I, I'm not much better than that, but I, I, I will say you're going to get a lot more life out of your, your spear gun. And I don't care what kind of spear gun it is. If you actually put the hose up to the trigger mechanism and flood the trigger mechanism, and uh, and then also, depending on the kind of handle, if it's got a hollow handle, hit the inside of the handle, um, pull the shaft out, and wash the shaft off separately. Some sh and let it. What I like to do is I like to leave the shaft outside of the track when they dry. Okay. Um, and you know after after an hour or whatever, I'll go ahead and pop it back in the in the track. But if you let that water sit in there, it may sit for a long time, particularly in a human environment. And many of us that spearfish all the time live in humid places. So that, that's a biggie. The other thing is just you need to be observant um, about your spear gun. Injuries can happen if you're having problems with the trigger mechanism. You know, things just don't always seat right. If that happens, do not use the gun. Um, mm. you know, that's a deadly weapon. You know, just like shooting through a, a, a you know, a 60-pound grouper, um, you're going to shoot right through a 150-pound 100, person real easily. So, yeah, yeah. you know, be very careful when it comes to, uh, to, you know, noticing little weird problems. And call the manufacturer. Sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it is. But I would much rather have somebody call me because they think they might have a problem than to go out there and accidentally kill somebody. I think one of the, one of the beauties of the wooden, wooden guns, too, is just that ability to, to um, pop the mech out and um and and have a do a good clean in it as well um that seems to be a huge advantage how often do you recommend guys do that uh, to be honest i wouldn't pop it out unless you needed to um okay you can um like like shrek mentioned uh, most wooden spear guns have got two pins on the trigger mech and you simply i i use a uh, a nail punch mm. and tap it out and pull it the rest of, pull the pins out the rest of the way with pliers but if you need to change out the mechanism, that's a great way to do it. Otherwise, just just wet it down. Okay. So cool. you know, make make sure you clean it well with fresh water. Hmm. Okay. Um, do you do you just do it with a hose, or do you use a bucket? Um, I like running water. Um, yeah. In fact, I I'm a tech diver and a rebreather diver, and I've got God, I own more damn dive gear than I know what to do with. Um, I stopped using a rinse bin for my gear. And normally what I would do is I would actually hose it off of the hose. Okay. Um, you know, that running water and it, you don't have to hit it with high power or anything like that. Just flowing water. It will carry the salt away. Mm. Um, and you also won't trap bubbles somewhere. Um, or you're not as likely to trap bubbles as you would if you put it in a rinse bin. But if you've got a rinse bin handy, why not, you know, go ahead and use it. There are times where I'll use both the rinse bin, as long as there's not a whole bunch of piss-stained uh, wetsuits in it. Um, you know, there's there's nothing worse than uh, somebody making soup. Yeah. 
uh, good old urine soup and just mixing your, your, all your gear through it. It's, it's, it's a class act. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah that's nasty. So we're still we're still we're still on maintenance and that and um in your on your website you've got um, an about section at killshotspearguns.com forward slash about um, and you've got some really good info in here just about spear guns and maintenance in general but one thing I wanted to address was um just bands uh, your rubbers um, how, how do you maintain them what life do you expect out of them. Um, we can go religious and political with it if you want and talk about brands and distinctions, but um, yeah. So bands, bands are the power plant of the gun. You know, it's, it's that simple. Mm. Uh, if your bands don't work, your gun's not going to work. It's funny. I, I got somebody that brought a gun in yesterday. The bands up there near the wishbones look like a desiccated elephant penis. <laughs> it was, it, it was pretty horrible. Mm. Uh, so, you know, and I asked him, I said, you want me to change these? And he's like, no, no, no. I usually use them until they break. <laughs> I just kind of oh, rolled my eyes. I was like, okay. So, yeah. um, so bands, um, I change mine every six to eight months, okay. probably. Um, I, I don't get to go spearfishing as much as I'd like to go. But um, when I go, I'm typically in the water for four to six hours at a time. And that yeah. gun is loaded most of the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, UV light breaks breaks them down real fast. Um, and you know, the second that you tie a knot uh, to tie that wishbone, the, the clock starts ticking on that band. Mm. Um, according to the guys over at Primeline, you can put bands inside of a cardboard box, and they will last for 20 years. Wow. Until you tie that knot, and okay. then you have about probably 400 days before that thing is going to, you know, suffer dry rot. Okay. Uh, that's in, in ideal conditions. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I change my bands pretty frequently. I, I would suggest that everybody change their bands annually. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're talking, you know, 15 to 20 bucks per band, 25 bucks per band. That grouper that you're about to go shoot or that, that Wahoo is worth a whole hell of a lot more than that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yep. get out there and, uh, take care of those those bands. Um, yeah, that's one, that's biggie. One disturbing thing I've been seeing lately is it seems like there's periodic upticks with metal wishbones. Do you have a hatred for them? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gee, but they're, they're, like they're the last thing you want to see with a new a, a new diver with one of those in their hands. Like I seen this guy's finger get destroyed the other day. Yeah. Um, by one of those things passing through. Gee, does that hurt? Yeah, I've, I, I caught myself uh, a few years ago. I, I had loaded a gun and had taken my finger off of the, uh, the bands. Mm. And as I was pulling my hand out, the wishbone broke and mm. the metal caught my finger. Now, fortunately, it got most of the glove um, and it only cut me a little bit. But I was wearing gloves. If I wouldn't have been wearing gloves, it would have been stitches time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was pretty ugly. Um, Metal wishbones have got their place. Um, if you're a lot of a lot of spear gun manufacturers that use them, do not um, polish the notches on mm. on the on the shafts. You know the the problem with an un unpolished notch is is it's really easy to cut yourself on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I got just tears through Dyneema as well. Yeah, I I got four stitches one time. I I was at home. And I'm walking through the house. And my wife's like, "Hey, your hand is bleeding." 
And I looked down and I, I had a cut on my pinky from where I had run my finger across the, uh, the, the, the notch on the, on the spear shaft. And it had sliced my pinky wide open. I didn't even feel it. And, you know, it was dripping blood all over the place. I wound up having to go to the ER and have it stitched up. Jeepers. So, so do you use notches or fin shafts? I use fins. Yeah, um, yeah. It's primarily because I use enclosed tracks or making yeah, closed yeah. tracks. Yeah. So you've, you've got to have it. And then, you know, once you've got an inventory of, of those, um, you know, it's hard for me to justify buying something else. Mm. Um, although and no, no, so, sorry, um, I, I keep interrupting you. But the other thing I was thinking about was um, where the mono or Dyneema, if you're using that as shooting line, where that sort of plugs into the shaft because you've got the rear, you know, the rear hole where you tight, you know, or you've got the ones that it sometimes goes in the in the rear fin or, you know, sometimes they have a separate mounting, you know, like a point, a tie-in point. Um, what's your preference on that? So um, as far as the material to use? Uh, no, where, where? Where to tie into on the shaft? So it, as far back as you can. Um, okay. if, if you think about the shaft, it's basically a tail-stabilized projectile. Um, you know, so if, if you've got that, uh, the shooting line helps to stabilize the shaft as it as it's leaving and and trailing away from the gun. Mm. Um, so if you put that further up, like I've I've noticed that some manufacturers put a hole in every one of the 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 tabs, the yeah. the shark fins, mm. and that that could lead you to believe well maybe I should just put it anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you think about it, if if you put it in that middle, um, the the middle. Uh, tab and you just hold on to the shooting line the the shaft is going to kind of hang in the you know at about a 45 degree angle yeah yeah if you tie all the way at that back one it's pretty much going to go straight up and down so you know that that shaft has got to take that shooting line with it now as far as what kind of shooting line to use um i'll start another semantic argument here <laughs> Love it. i i like monofilament um monofilament has memory and yep. it, it has a tendency when you when you pull the trigger, it it drops off and then it gets pulled out in these big huge loops. Yeah. Um, whenever I see people getting their bands tangled, a lot of times there are people that are using Dyneema, and and what's happening is the Dyneema's limp and it's headed toward the fish. the The other thing I like about monofilament is is I tend to shoot the fish, swim over and try to grab the shaft, and manage the fish immediately. You know, it's the, the quicker I can get my hands on it, the, the less likely a shark is to get a hold of it. Yep. Uh, so I can immediately get that that guy under control. Going past a big loop of Dyneema, it's kind of hard to navigate. Where monofilament tends to be very rigid, you just kind of push it to the side. And I, I don't know, I, I don't get tangled up in it as easily. But my reel line, God, is one of the reasons I hate reels. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten horribly tangled up in my reel line before. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a learning curve that one for sure. I think I think the other part, of, like I had a spear gun I bought a while ago. It was a Salvamar Hero. Not not to just I'm not trying to name drop them, but the the fins on it were still sharp, and the me, the the mechanism where the spear slotted in and the mono was tied on the back was 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 really abrasive on the on the mech and so i think it's another thing to pay attention to is just to you know file file the, the sharp metal edges down if you know whether you're using dyneema or monofilament it doesn't really matter um yeah that that needs to be done that i, I ended up 
losing a, a fish in a shaft, um, I think like on the same dive day I used it. It was it's a fantastic gun, but they're just those small details. That was that was a little bit annoying. Shafts shafts are a, a tough one. I mm. I use a company in Tampa Bay. Uh, they're called um, Spearcrafters, and right. everything they do um, they do well. Um, all of their shark fins are they've got a really cool process for how they mount them they they basically weld them onto the shaft and they don't really care that they're perfectly straight because mm. they pop them into a cnc and they mill down both sides oh wow yeah so by doing that now it's absolutely dead center in the middle of that shaft then they come back and they they put a rounded edge on all of those sharp edges yeah and man i don't have any complaints about the way those guys do things and are they using carbon steel, spring steel, or are they use or um, stainless? <laughs> they use something called 174. Yeah. Um, it's 174 stainless, and it's got a higher amount of chromium, which I believe means that it can be uh, more hard yeah. um, than other shafts. And the cool thing about them is, is they don't, they do not rust. I mean, spring steel, man, the first time you take it out, it gets rusty. Mm. Um, you know, with with these guys' shaft, you really have to abuse the shaft to get it to rust. So, and the other thing too is they heat treat their shafts, which um, it reorganizes the molecules and everything in the in the shaft, and it it makes them harder for one, and it makes them less likely to bend, um, mm. or I shouldn't say bend. the The shaft will flex, but it will come back to true. I have I have watched those shafts literally bend like thirty degrees. I'm thinking to myself, oh, that sucker's trashed, and I, I'll get it up to the surface and put it put it back in the gun. And with an enclosed track, you can tell immediately if it's if it's warped, because um, mm-hmm. it 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 starts to rub on the track. Nope, goes right back in. I've also got some that look like pretzels in the back. Um, <laughs> you know, big fish will do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Ed, I am conscious of time. We've chatted at ad finitum today about spear guns I, I don't think we've even scratched the surface of your knowledge and but it's been a real pleasure um and i want to i want to do a full-length interview again um but i i'd really like to wrap out today's sort of section on on spear guns was there anything else that you felt like um we didn't quite get to today that you really want to cover no i mean we've we've covered a lot you know it's it, building spear guns definitely isn't easy no but it's it's one of those things that people shouldn't be hesitant to do either um Mm. you know buy the parts give it a try and the cool thing is is that if you don't like the way that you built it then you take the parts off and you put them on a different gun so i I was talking about my ugly first gun that i ever built um last week i actually took the the mechanism off the gun and i'm getting ready to put it on a new gun you know say that gun's 10 years old um that trigger back is 10 years old it's getting ready to go on a brand new gun. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And um, a lot of the skills are transferable. I think it gives you a real appreciation for what you are using sometimes when you're in the water. Even if you, you know, your your homemade gun doesn't quite do what you wanted it to do. Um, perhaps, you know, just the, the lessons learned gives you an appreciation for what's actually out there. So Yeah. And it's the coolest thing in the world when you shoot your first fish with your with your gun. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean you you did it. You made it, so very rewarding. Um, I'm going to call this uh, part one with Ed uh, building spear guns today, and uh, I'm going to get you back very shortly for a full interview.
and uh, hear a little bit more about your background, Spearfishing. How does that sound? That sounds great. Cool. Well, I'll 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 catch you very shortly. I think. Okay. Well, Shrek, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. You guys are doing a great job out there. Ah, cool. And um, guys can come and visit you at killshotspearguns.com and uh, killshotspearguns on Instagram. You've got a YouTube channel too, Ed? You do. I do. It, yeah, and you're you're never going to guess what it's called. Killshot Spear Guns. That's it. Wow. That's a real good, consistent branding there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Um, I'll talk to you very shortly for a full-length interview. All right, great. All right, catch you, Ed. All righty, bye. Killshot Spear Guns, timber guns made in the USA. Simple, effective, dependable, made in the Florida Keys by Ed Martin. These spear guns are an absolute work of art. Check them out at killshotspearguns.com. And, hey, I've got a special for you, 30 bucks off user code NOOB. That's just NOOB, N-O-O-B. For a limited time only, save $30 on any spear gun at Killshot Spear Guns. Save 30 bucks on any spear gun. Check it out. Jeebs, I hope you stuck around through that whole episode. If you did, then I know that you're probably going to end up taking on one of these DIY wooden spear gun projects yourself. It's possibly a good time with all the corona madness as well. It's something that you could consider um, even taking on. We got lost right into the weeds, but I hope it inspired you and give you and gave you some fuel for the fire if you are looking to take on your own DIY wood spear gun project. In two weeks, I'm off to chat with Valentine Thomas, who is a very interesting character in the world of spearfishing. She serves as, a, as, as, a, as an ambassador. She's been on Joe Rogan podcasts and various magazines and TV shows. She heavily promotes um, spearfishing as a sustainable and safe sport. And uh, she has a lot to say about ocean conservation, commercial fishing, becoming part of that process and uh, there's some really cool insights in this interview coming up, so I'm looking forward to sharing that. I'll see you guys in two weeks. If you would like to support the show, jump on patreon.com forward slash noobspiro. Become a patron listener. There's three levels to support the show at. And uh, hey, thanks for listening. This episode of the Noob Spiro podcast is brought to you by spearfishing.com.au. They've been on board for more than 100 episodes, and I'd love for you to shop at spearfishing.com.au. They have a price speed guarantee, hassle-free returns, flat shipping rates across Australia, and you can save 20 bucks. For every purchase over $200, if you use the code NOOBSPIRO, you save $20. Thanks for supporting the Noob Spiro podcast and shopping with spearfishing.com.au.